0: Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And let's begin by reading this passage today. This is just continuing our study of 1 Thessalonians. And we find ourselves today in chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Our Father, we pray now for spiritual understanding that you would give us the ability to understand the truth that is in this passage and also the ability to apply it to our life. To those of us who have lost a loved one recently, we pray that this would be a great comfort to us. And for those who perhaps uh, will be grieving in the near future and that only you know the timing of that, We pray that this text in particular would be lodged in their mind and in their heart. That your word would sustain them when they go through that deep valley of being separated from loved ones. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, death, as we all know, is a universal tragedy that touches every family. And some of us who are young, maybe there's been a long season where death really hasn't touched our lives. Uh, maybe when we were younger, we, we had a grandmother or grandfather die, or maybe a pet died at some point. But really for years or, or decades, death may not have touched us. And that's, that's common, most of the people in town, right? Driving by. Uh, Death is just not a constant reality in every single life, in every single family. But if we sit and we think just about the experience of humanity, we all know at some point someone we love, and not just someone we love, but our best friend will die. Whether we're married or whether that's our, our father or our mother, at some point death is going to separate us from the people that are so dear to us, that are so dear to us. So my question for you is, when death strikes in that moment, what thoughts are going to be going through your head? As you're at the the ceremony, at the service, at the graveside, and you're looking down just at a tombstone, and you know your loved one, is their body is laid to rest there, what... What will, you see, what will you say to yourself? What thoughts will be going through your head? What, what can be said? What, what can any person say to you in that moment to sustain you? Uh, the world uh, knows that you need comfort, and so they'll try. They'll try. They'll say things like, well, my, my thoughts are with you, or if they're a spiritual person, oh, they're in a better place, but that's not really built on anything, is it? Or if they're not spiritual, maybe it's an atheist, but they still have some compassion for you. They'll say, they'll try to minimize the loss. Well, you'll know, be thankful for that season of life for that person. And, and, you know, there's still joys to come, almost just like trying to say get over it, but in a nicer way. But I want to submit to you that God's word has a very specific message for you to any of you that have lost a loved one. And that word is found in our passage today. So I don't want to give you a human word of comfort. I want to give you God's word of comfort. And broadly speaking, to summarize that word to you, it's this. God wants you to think of the future. And so he says to you, let me tell you about the future to comfort you. And so from this passage, I want to set before you five reasons Why you should not grieve like the world. Not that you shouldn't grieve. Not that you shouldn't grieve. But that your sorrow needs to be different. It ought to be different from your neighbor who has no hope. The first reason why you shouldn't grieve like the world, like someone that's utterly hopeless, is that your loved one, if they died as a Christian, they're only sleeping. They're only sleeping. Notice that in verse 13. Paul says, We don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed of this, brethren, about who? About those who are asleep. Not about those who are dead, but about those who are asleep. And so, Scripture, if we were to survey all the Scripture and look for this usage of the word sleep and using it with death, we'd see it's pretty consistent. Uh, David, Right? It says in another place in Scripture, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. Matthew 9, 24, Jesus is walking to a girl who has just died. And what does he say? He says, The girl has not died, but is asleep. Imagine that. Walking into a funeral for a little girl and telling the parents, this little girl it's on, she's only sleeping. Or in John 11, Jesus went to the funeral of his own friend, Lazarus. And what did he say? He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. So scripture is pretty consistent when speaking about the death of a believer. God would want you to think more like the death of a Christian as like falling asleep. Some cults, honestly, is what they are, Interpret this to mean soul sleep, like we go into a state of unconsciousness. Our soul is unconscious until the end of time. They take this super literally. But if we, if we try to take all of Scripture seriously, we, we can't arrive at that conclusion. We can't arrive at that conclusion. This isn't soul sleep. Let me just give you one verse. Uh, if you've ever heard that doctrine or that teaching of soul sleep, I would just give you Second Corinthians 5 verse 8. Paul says, we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body. So dead, absent from the body, and to be at home with the Lord. So to be absent from your body is what? It's equivalent to being at home with the Lord. You're not sleeping at home with the Lord, okay? It's implying that you have a conscious fellowship with Christ the moment you cross the threshold of death as a Christian. But why does scripture say sleep then? Okay, it doesn't mean soul sleep. But why does it use this word? Well, it's because it's a euphemism. It wants to, re- God wants to remove the sting of death, even when we talk about it. Uh, there is no sting in death for the Christian. And even though it's, it's a tremendously uh, sad time of profound grief for us when we lose family members, it's still tempered by that knowledge, okay, this is not the end. This is not the end of the road for this person. The word sleep is used because the body is laid to rest. And so the body is in a temporary state of physical inactivity. So it's like sleep in that sense. That just as a child is sleeping on his bed and he's, he's unconscious, he's not moving around. But he's still, his life is still there. His life is still in him. That's what how God wants you to think of a departed Christian is that his body you may no longer see his body moving around and doing stuff. He may no longer be in your house or she or, or a little son or daughter, but his life or her life is not gone. He's still alive. she's still alive. His body is only temporarily inactive. Notice also how. God speaks of people that are not Christians. What does he say in verse 13? It says, so that you will not grieve as the rest. Who are the rest? Those who don't have hope. The hopeless. And so the unbeliever, the person that's not a Christian, is hopeless. That's what the passage is saying. Everyone who is not a Christian has no hope. This was written in a different context here. It wasn't written in 21st century California, America, okay? It was written in the Greco-Roman world. And like today, there are all sorts of philosophers speaking about death. They had all sorts of ideas. And even though there was a lot of differences between the different pagan religions, uh, there was a prevailing view of death there was a prevailing and widely accepted perspective on death. Let me just read you a few quotes so you get a taste for how the average person in the Roman Empire or the average Greek person thought about death. One Greek writer named Theocritus said, hopes are for the living, without hope are the dead. So right from the horse's mouth, we have no hope when we die. The Roman philosopher Seneca describes hopes in the afterlife as human pipe dreams. So this is one of, a, a top politician and philosopher in Rome. That's what he said. That's just a pipe. That's a child's fantasy to think of hope after death. Another poet, Catullus, said, The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light, light sets, we must sleep a never-ending night. Think of that to think of death as a never-ending night. So notice, they're not think, saying, uh, speaking of punishment and hell and those things that we know are true from Scripture, but death to them, it's this veil you can't see through. It's just darkness. One of the most popular tomb inscriptions read, I was not, and I was. I am not, and I care not. How depressing is that? I am not and I care not. That's what they want you to read when you visit their graveside. And this was so popular, there was actually an abbreviation for this inscription. I care not. I'm not. I no longer exist. And I don't care. And you shouldn't either. Another inscription read, we are nothing. See, reader, how quickly we mortals return from nothing to nothing. And then a final one, if you want to know where I am or who I am, the answer is ash and burnt embers. Wow, that guy must have been really pessimistic when he told people to put that on his tombstone. Tell people, I'm just ash, I'm nothing. What about modern people? Well, that perspective hasn't changed largely. We may not, you know, worship Zeus and, and Athena and all these people, uh, the, um, the Greek myths and, and whatnot, but we still have basically the same view of death as a culture, most of the people you know. There's atheists, there's people like Stephen Hawking, who passed away recently, a world-famous physicist. He said in an interview, quote, I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers. That is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. Another popular scientist, Carl Sagan, said, I would love to believe that when I die I will live again, that some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But as much as I want to believe that, I know of nothing to suggest that it is more than wishful thinking. And so what can we say from these from these perspectives? Well, we could say the average person that you know that's not a Christian has absolutely no certainty about life after death, about any kind of afterlife. What happens beyond the grave? They may have a wish. Oh, well, I think, or I, I kind of feel like such and such. Notice a lot of unbelievers talk like that. I'd, you talk about Christ or the resurrection or judgment or heaven, and they respond, how do they respond? Well, yeah, that's great, but I just think, uh, and then they blurt out something that just pulled, they pulled out of the thin air, pulled from a Hollywood movie, from some philosophy book they read in college, from someone on YouTube and they kind of mingle this and mash this together and they have a little thought to comfort them about death. But there's no certainty. No certainty. They can only comfort one another with vague cliches. Like when a, a huge tragedy strikes in our nation and there, there's news articles and social media posts and all that and people try to, they try to comfort each other, but what do they say? The best they can say is, my thoughts are with you. Um, does that help you to know that someone's thought is with you? What does that even mean? Does that mean anything? Uh, I don't, I can't figure it out. So if you know what that is meant to imply or communicate, you can inform me of it. A prayer is something, but a thought, okay, you're thinking about me. That doesn't really comfort me though. What I want to know is where. what happened to the person I loved? What happened to them? Where are they? Will I see them again? So, if you're not a Christian, the Bible says that you're hopeless. I mean, that's a plain implication from the text, isn't it? That if you're without Christ, that you're hopeless. Uh, All spiritual paths don't lead to heaven. And I'm not saying that because I think or because I'm a, a conservative, fundamental Christian. I'm saying that because, well, this is what determines my beliefs. And so. This book says, if you're without Christ, that you're still guilty. That you, you don't have a sacrifice for sin. That there really is a true living and personal God that keeps an account of our actions and our thoughts and our motives. And when we die, we're accountable to God. And if we don't have Christ to stand in our place and represent us, we die in our sin and we die in a state of guilt before God. The Bible says that there's no vague hope for all humanity, for all people. What does it say? It says, if you die as an unbeliever, as not a Christian, the only thing that you have is a terrifying expectation of judgment, is the exact word scripture uses. There is no comfort in death without Christ. But a Christian is is very different. A Christian can grieve, and does still grieve, but that grief is in hope, right? It's still, it's in hope. But does this mean that, that we shouldn't grieve when believers die? And you may have had this happen to you. It, it actually happens frequently in a church when a family member dies or, or someone's loved one dies. There'll be some guy there and he's trying, he wants to do good. He's trying to help, but he doesn't help. He just comes up to you and says, um, well, he's in heaven. Why are you crying? I mean, you know, he's in heaven and you'll be okay and you'll see him again and, you know, uh, just cheer up, right? It's it's okay. And, you, oh, you're still crying a week later. Um, Oh no, have you heard they're still mourning? Uh, two weeks, a month, two months later, there must be something wrong. There must be backsliding or falling away or something like that. Well, let me just refute that that idea that grief is a sign of any kind of weak faith i already referred to jesus visiting the the um funeral of his friend lazarus w- what did he do at the funeral do you remember the shortest verse in the bible right jesus wet even jesus who knew he was about to raise his friend from the dead maybe less than an hour from that. Even he was so overcome by the sorrow of death that even he wept. Even he wept. And the language in that chapter, it's very strong. It's not a single tear. It's a a shaking of the body. It's a weeping, a profound grief. Profound grief that he demonstrated there. And what, what did the people say when they saw him? They said, oh, What weak faith this man has in God. Why would he weep so much? What did they say? They said, see how he loved him. So those tears, they're a sign of your love. They're not a sign of weak faith. They're a sign of love. That's all that they show. But still, there must be something different to our grief. Let me come back around to that. That first statement I said, we're still on that first reason, is that that, Brother or sister in Christ is only sleeping. He or she is only sleeping. Sleep is more like death. It's a temporary separation. And what does that mean? If they're sleeping, what does that mean one day? They'll wake up. They'll wake up one day. And that day is actually what this passage is teaching us here. Verse 14 gives us the second reason. So the first one is he's only sleeping or she's only sleeping. But the second reason is, he or she must be raised back to life. That there's actually a logical necessity for that dead believer to come back to life. It's not just, I hope and pray one day they will come back, but there's actually a reason. There's actually a reason why they will come back to life. And verse 14 spells out the reason. It says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, So if we believe that, here's our basis, here's our foundation, our confession. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So notice, it's not just God is so kind, you know what, he'll raise your friend, your family member back from the dead. But that's actually built on, that hope is built on a historical reality in the the past. And what is that? It's the work of Christ, the person and work of Christ. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that's the core of the Christian faith, is the person and work of Christ and what Christ did for us in his death. And notice that it doesn't just say that Jesus fell asleep. Do you notice that? That the dead believers are referred to as those who are asleep. But when we get to Jesus, it doesn't say Jesus fell asleep. Why do you think that is? Well, if we are arguing that sleep is a way of taking the bitterness out of death for the Christian, when we switch now to speaking explicitly of death, referring to Christ, we see that it was bitter for him, right? Death was bitter for Christ, and that's why it says he died he died. If you were to read the Gospels and read about that, that's the one event that has the most verses devoted to it, is the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. That there's four different accounts of this event. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus's life. But when you get to the end of his life, as he's about to die, the narrative slows way down. And so you have four extended narratives about this event this man who died right on the cross he didn't just fall softly to sleep he didn't just he didn't fall asleep in death with all his friends around him uh, with all his you know family members and, and disciples around him how did he die he died on a cross the most shameful way to die that's ever been devised in the history of the world. He died a death of shame. He died as a common criminal, would have been executed. And was God, we sang that song, abide with me, right? When we're on the deathbed, we want to sing that, God, abide with me, remain with me as I cross the threshold of death. But what did Christ say? Could he sing that song? What did he say? He said, why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? Talking to his Father, the Heavenly Father. Jesus was forsaken on the cross. His heart broke on the cross. He had no comfort as he died. And we have to remember that. That we are forgiven because of this tremendous cost that God paid. That the Son of God actually had to suffer in that way. That the Father had to forsake his Son on the cross. And that's why God can take out that bitterness of death for us or for the loved ones we know. That's why there's no bitterness for us. It's not that that bitterness disappeared somewhere, but it was all collected and then poured out on Christ on the cross. And then Christ rose from the dead because he was not simply or merely a man. He was God in the flesh. And as God, he was not like us. So even if I had never sinned in my life, I would still not be able to stand in your place because sin deserves an eternal punishment. And I can't pay that. I can't pay that as just a creature. But Christ, because he's truly God, truly man, was able to pay the full penalty of sin. And his righteousness is a perfect righteousness that defeated death. And so it was impossible for him to remember to remain dead, and he rose from the dead as proof of that. And so what is the connection to this? these family members or friends that we are or meditating on? Well, the connection is that they are united to Christ. And so when that person died, they actually died in union with Christ. Christ paid the penalty of their sin, and the perfect righteousness of Christ was put on their account. And so that's the reason. That's the reason we can comfort one another about departed friends and family that die as Christians, is that they are received into glory for a reason. There's a real reason. It's not just vague, wishy-washy comforts. We can point to the gospel, which is the work of Christ, as the basis for that hope. And so we can imagine God with his record books in heaven pouring over them, and we know there's something like that, the way scripture speaks. And he sees the name of your son, daughter, friend, husband, wife, mother, father. He sees that person and their record, and what does he see? He, says, he sees next to their name not a list of sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, And so God says, there's no reason for this believer to remain dead. He has to be raised. He has to come back to life. Do you see that? That it's a necessity for that person to be raised from the dead. That's the basis for the Christian hope. That our resurrection was actually purchased by Christ on the cross. The third reason we see in verse 13... Why should we not grieve like the world? Well, when that day comes, whoever that person was, they will miss no blessing. They'll miss nothing. Back then in Thessalonica, um, many, many people think, and I would agree, that there were some people in this church that were worried. Because remember, you have to put your, yourself in their shoes once in a while. The gospel was still very new. It was still very new. And the gospel was what? Well, Christ is coming back. He's coming back to raise the dead and to bring in the kingdom. So imagine you're, you know, a few decades after Christ ascended into heaven and the Apostle Paul shows up preaching the gospel. And what's your expectation? Well, any moment now, Christ could come back. He could come back tomorrow, next week, and I'm ready. I'm ready. But then, oh, my mother died. Okay, okay. I thought Christ would have come back before that happened. Oh, my son died. My husband or wife died. And so people at the church had questions. They were a little confused. How how are we to think of this? Is this a sign that uh, God is somehow displeased with them, that they died before Christ returned? And today, I'm guessing that, I'm guessing no one here has that specific worry that, oh, someone died. I thought, I really thought Christ would come back before they died. I doubt you have that specific concern, but you might have uh, the same concern in a more general sense. Uh, Imagine, for example, you know a family member who becomes a Christian and then one week later is killed in a tragic accident, right? What would you be tempted to think about them? Well, I mean, they didn't have any time to, to do anything for Jesus. They didn't have any time to to evangelize anyone. They didn't, probably didn't give one cent to the poor or to, or to anyone. Uh, they didn't have this huge list of works. They're just, I guess they became a Christian for a, a few days, and then God took them away. Or maybe even someone that's a, a more nominal Christian, more casual Christian, and you, you kind of doubt their salvation, like honestly you doubt their salvation for a long time. But then, oh, they get serious. They get serious like right at the end, and then boom, they, they're gone. We might be tempted to think, oh, well, that's somehow a sign of God's judgment on them. That's somehow a sign that um, God was displeased with them. Maybe they'll be at another rung of heaven. We're tempted to think like that. uh, Create levels in the kingdom. And I think there's one passage in particular that that we can hold on to if we're tempted to think that. That's at the end of Luke, right, with the, the thief on the cross the de- the deathbed conversion, right? The st- the prototypical conversion, right at the end of life. What happened there? Well, Jesus was crucified with with two criminals on either side of him. So there, that's why you see in some pictures when people portray it that there are three crosses. So the other two, there were criminals being crucified together with Jesus, and he was in the middle. One of the th- one of the criminals was was insulting Christ and making fun of him, and the other one uh, w- said something very different. It, it seems that he actually repented as he hung and lay dying next to Christ. He didn't have any time to evangelize a continent. Okay, He didn't impoverish himself to feed the poor. Uh, he probably actually did zero I mean the only thing he ever did between his conversion and his death is pray. He uttered one one prayer. What was that? Wasn't this this hours long prayer, this real flowery flowing prayer? It was just this real simple prayer. What did he say? He said, "Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom." It's just a cry for mercy. That's the only thing he ever did for Christ is utter one sentence pleading for mercy from Christ. And what did, what did Jesus say? He said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So think of that. Jesus, the same day Jesus, well, a few days later when he ascended, but when he died and went to heaven, he shows up with this guy, this criminal on the cross that did nothing. I mean, what did this guy deserve? This guy does deserve to arrive in heaven with Christ, to be in paradise, not just in this this big general kingdom, but actually with Christ in paradise. No. And that's because that believer that you know that died was not received into heaven because of their good works. They were not received into the presence of God, and they didn't go to be with Christ because of all the great things they did. Maybe they did a lot, maybe they did a little. They were received into glory because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because he's merciful. Because he, he was so merciful to receive this criminal who was probably being executed for murder. We also we often call him a thief, but it's more likely that he had been convicted of murder. So Jesus never turns anyone away, even at the very end of life. And so that believer you know is not going to miss anything. They're, they won't miss the resurrection. They won't be at a lower rung of heaven. Verse 16 gives us the fourth reason. It's actually very striking. Paul Paul wants to so emphasize that these departed believers aren't missing anything that he says that they will actually rise first. So imagine Christ comes back today. This passage is saying the people that have already departed they'll rise before us. Because other passages teach that when Christ comes back, it won't just be resurrection, but there will actually be what we call translation of living believers, where we are transformed the moment Christ comes back. And so it's not just a resurrection to life like like we are today, but actually a resurrection to immortality, okay? To glory, a resurrection of glory. And so whether believers are in the grave at that point, whether their bodies are in the grave or still alive, that there will be the same transformation that will happen to all Christians. And the dead in Christ will rise first. See that at the end of verse 16. They they won't miss anything. They'll actually be the first to rise. And notice now he does acknowledge that they're dead. And so that's how we know, okay, it's not it's not uh, he's not trying to deny the reality of death. He does finally acknowledge they are in fact dead, but he can't just refer to them as dead. They're what? Dead in Christ. Meaning that death hasn't separated them from Christ. They separated them from you, that's true. But not from Christ. Not from Christ. They're dead in Christ, meaning that even now as their body is laid to rest awaiting the resurrection, their soul is still in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans eight thirty eight says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that should teach us, Okay, whether we're laying dying, awaiting our own death, or s- some believer we know is taken from us in death, death is not a sign that God cast them away or rejected them. Okay, this passage is saying death will still occur until Christ returns, but that death, that does not separate, it can't separate us from Christ. We're in Christ whether we're living or sleeping. But we get more specifics. So it's not, up to this point, we've been talking about at a general level, oh, one day the resurrection will happen, the departed believers are still with Christ, but God actually wants us to know some specifics about the the day, the day that this will happen. It says, Christ, the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the Lord Jesus Christ, who's now sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, will one day come back physically. He will descend from heaven to raise the dead with a shout, it says. And the word shout, it's not, it can't perfectly capture the word here in the original language, but that refers to a a commanding cry or an order, like a a commander would give to a troop of soldiers or um, a captain would give to, Men rowing, that's the way it's used in other, in other occurrences in, in literature of the time. So Christ will descend, and he will give this command that will be heard around the world by the living and by the dead, church. Christ will return to call out of death all the believers who have ever died uh, from all time. He will descend with this signal, a cry of command, And how will his voice sound? It's interesting. Scripture does describe Christ's voice. When he was here at his first advent and he walked the earth, he was a very meek man. Uh, His it says his voice wasn't heard in the streets. The Messiah's voice wasn't heard shouting in the streets. Uh, He came meek. He came to humble himself. He came gently the first time, but it won't be that way when he returns. So he was like a lamb when he was here the first time, but when he returns, Scripture says he's more like a lion. Revelation 1 describes the glorified Christ. John says there, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. His voice was like the sound of many waters. So like the crashing of waves is how the voice of the glorified Christ sounds. Let me just read the full description there in that first chapter. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, so like royalty. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, And his eyes were like a flame of fire, emphasizing his holiness, his blazing, transcendent holiness. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, so like a warrior. Having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth. His face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him... I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not fear, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death. So that's Christ today. He's not this guy, you know, with the heart shining out and the long hair and and like this. He's this glorified majestic, holy king who has the power over death. And that's who will descend from heaven to raise the dead. It also says that there will be this voice of the archangel. And that's, inter- that's an interesting detail, isn't it? Why, why would God put this detail here? I, I'm honestly not quite sure why uh, this detail is in our passage. All I can do is describe it for you. Scripture says that it will not be just be the Lord Jesus at the, this time of the resurrection, which we would also call the rapture, It's another name for it. There will be an archangel and he will say something. Okay? So Scripture teaches that there are angels, okay, most of us believe that, but even more than that, there is a hierarchy of angels. So you can go way too far with this kind of stuff, okay? If you read extra biblical literature, even from the time period, uh, people are are happy to go into all sorts of detail about the archangel and his assistant and then this nation over here and and this complicated thing. But scripture, if we just limit ourselves to scripture, we're told really little about the angelic world. In fact, there's only one other time when an archangel is mentioned, and that's in Jude verse 9 where michael is called an archangel uh, but archangel arch means ruler and so an archangel is evidently some sort of higher level angel like the commander of all the angels or one of the top rank of angels in other words when christ comes he'll be attended by the most powerful glorious creatures that have that god has ever created the archangel The archangel's voice is also described in scripture. It says his voice is like thunder, like a lion's roar, like the crashing of storm waves, similar to Christ's voice. And so this will be a very loud event. It won't just be this rise from the dead, that kind of soft command. There'll be this crashing command. There'll be this huge climax of all this time we've been waiting for the resurrection. There'll be this huge celebration with all the angels around Christ to witness it. And the archangel, if I had to guess, will likely be the one summoning all the resurrected believers, all the immortal saints, to gather together to be with Christ. And that brings us to our final point in verse 17, which is that you will see that believer again. So we can say that to each other as Christians. It's not just, Well, we'll both be in heaven, but he or she might be on the way far side of heaven. Uh, No, scripture doesn't say that. It's actually really emphatic in verse 17. It says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. So he didn't have to use all those words to express that. But when he says together with them, he's saying we'll be together, but not just together, we'll be with them. You will see them again. You will see him or her. You'll see your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife again. They will be there. But I do need to explain this word caught up because it's a bit of a debate. So some of us, if we've been in the church a while or we've read theology books, uh, we may have heard of the rapture. Okay, we may have read some left behind books or seen a movie here or there. So we're aware that there's this, some disagreement maybe our church split when we were five or ten and over this this uh, event and the timing of the rapture. And I don't want to gloss over that. I do want to give my opinion on the matter here. So let's look at this word rapture. Uh, in your translation, I'm assuming the word rapture is not here. And yet I've entitled the sermon, The Rapture. Why did I do that? Well, this word caught up, in my translation it says caught up. That word... Uh, So the original word is a Greek word, but the Latin translation uses a word that sounds like rapture. It's the word that we get the word rapture from. And so it does, we do find that word, in a sense, in the passage, caught up. What does that word mean? Uh, The word rapture is actually used quite a few other times in the New Testament. It means to seize and carry away. And it's actually used three other times in the New Testament to describe someone being caught up to heaven. Okay, so the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 twice used this verb to describe describe his experience of being caught up to the third heaven. In other words, to the heaven, not just, you know, the air or outer space, but to the dwelling place of God, to the throne room of creation. He was actually caught up there somehow. Maybe his soul was caught up, we aren't told. And then in Revelation 12, verse 5, a bit of a a metaphor there, but it says that the child, referring to the Messiah, was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay, so this word, it can be used literally to describe a thief breaking into your house and rapturing your stuff, your TV, carrying it away. But it's also used three times, at least in the New Testament, to describe God bringing a believer to heaven. It refers to a sudden or forceful removal. Okay, so the usage of this word, so if you're you're aware of this debate, whether the rapture happens, you know, it's the same thing that when Christ comes back, it's the same event as when he comes back to judge and to reign, or whether it's prior to this tribulation period that Revelation tells us about, um, I would argue that it seems to imply the pre-tribulational view that Christ will come back to bring believers to heaven. And that's because of a few things. And and note, okay, to be fair, uh, I'm not saying, oh man, this is the proof here. And so if you have a different view, like bow to the proofs in this text. What I would just say to you is, while I do hold that view, the pre-tribulational view, this text, if we're honest with it, it seems to go that way. It seems to imply that, okay? And why do I say that? Well, the passage here, kind of leaves us hanging in the air, right? It doesn't say, and then Christ keeps coming back to earth. Uh, we are kind of left just with this picture of all the believers ascending up into the clouds to be with Christ, and then Paul says, therefore use these words to comfort one another. So, okay, there's this upward movement in the picture, and then Paul, he could have easily said, and then there's this descent, but there's no mention of that. But also, this text seems to harmonize with John 14. And so there, Jesus said to his disciples to comfort them, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go... And prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, so how, how does this fit with this text? Well, he said there in John 14, when he comes back, he's going to bring believers to heaven. And so it just seems to fit pretty naturally with that understanding that Christ is coming back for his church and will bring the church to heaven. And it, we need to just put off the full discussion of, on the end times events. And don't worry, there'll be a time where we'll get the charts out. Okay, we'll get all the lines out and try to put everything in order. And I'm, I believe that's worth doing. Okay, I'm not just going to hand wave over it, but we can leave it there for now. I think it's helpful to see that in the passage. So often we just kind of, when we get to those kind of debates, we just throw proof texts together and, and get in a fight. But it's helpful to just walk through it slowly. So when we get to that point, uh, we're familiar with the context. At any rate, this passage is teaching you will meet the Lord with that believer that you've been separated from in death. You'll mo- you will not meet the Lord alone. You'll meet him accompanied by not just that person, maybe that one person you're thinking of, but every believer across all time. There'll be this huge gathering of God's people that will gather together with Christ. And not just that, but you'll be with him, your friend or your family member forever. You'll be with them forever. There'll be no goodbyes. There'll be no separations. I mean, even in the most joyful wedding or the most joyful birthday of a child, there's still in, this, in the back of your mind, you know, this won't be forever. One day they'll move out. One day they might get sick. One day we'll have to say goodbye, but it won't be that way after this moment that we're, that we're looking at in this text. And then finally, you'll be with him forever, but in a better place. That's another cliche that the world throws around. He's in a better place. Well, again, we can say that because of this truth. We can really say that as a word of comfort. He's in a better place. She's in a better place in heaven with the Lord. And we will one day be there with them. I mean, even think about go. You may have this real fond season of your life where you just had all the people that you loved around you. There was life every day, hustling and bustling of life every day, so joyful, so bright in your memory. But even then, your house was already starting to decay, wasn't it? I mean, you already had aches and pains. Uh, you were still aware of the decay. That would set in that was already setting in. I mean, would you would you really want it to be back the way it was? Is that is that the ultimate for you to go back to that time with that person? Right? Or is it something even better than that? I mean, in heaven, we'll be with those believers in heaven, which scripture calls paradise, the throne room of creation, where God's glory is most majestically displayed with all the saints from the beginning of the world, all our, our sons and our daughters, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, friends, all the believers that we know and love will be there. They'll be there. There'll be angels there, thousands upon thousands of angels worshiping the Lord. But the greatest blessing, and what makes this so much better that even the brightest moment in your life is that the Lord will be there. Christ will be there and he is the one that really makes heaven heaven. If you have no love for Christ, I'm guessing heaven seems pretty boring to you, okay? And it will be. Uh, not that you'll go there if you hate the Lord, but, <laughs> but that's what a lot of atheists say. I've even read some quotes from people this week. They say, that sounds so boring to just be in heaven floating, playing the harp. Nah, I want to live like the devil, and that's all there is, so I'll do that. But really, Christ is is the crown jewel of heaven. He's what makes heaven heaven, right? He's the creator of all things. He's the fountain of life. He's not just our savior. He actually created the world. God the Father created the world through his son. He upholds the world. So my heart up here is beating because of the Lord Jesus Christ giving me life and the resurrection life that I'll have, I'll have because of him. He's a gentle shepherd, right? He's a gentle shepherd to his people. He's a compassionate friend of sinners. He's a merciful and faithful high priest for all the people that have ever come to him. And finally, he's unchangeable. Even the best person you know can change. Even the most mature, loving believer, sacrificial believer, believer they may have dementia one day. It may not even because they they fall into this huge backslide spiritually, but they just change. Their mind may go. They may not be that sweet person that you've always known. You may not always be able to depend upon them. But Christ is unchangeable. And so we have eternal life because of that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what what does this teach us? Well, let's go back to that question. Where will you turn for hope when death strikes your family or even our church? And that will happen in our church. It could be me, it could be you, it could be the person you most love. What thoughts will go through our minds when death strikes us, when we're thrown into profound grief? Uh, One day, maybe you haven't had to yet, but one day you will visit the graveside. You'll be at the cemetery. You'll be there. What will go through your head? I would encourage you not to underestimate the power of death to throw you into sorrow and grief and, and to really remember that, that when that brings you so low and into such darkness that that, that doesn't mean God has forsaken you or, or punished you. Uh, the Lord, as we've already seen, was there when his friend departed. But what does God say to you? Well, I said at the beginning that he says, think of the future, but even more specifically, he would want you to know that your brother will rise again or your sister will rise again. That's the hope that we have. The best times in your life with those believers you know that have died, they're not behind you. That's that's a paradigm shift in thinking you need to have. It, you don't look back to, to look at and remember the most uh, blessed times with those people. They're actually still in front of you. They're actually still in front of you. There's still so much sweeter times to be had with those people. Well, with that, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to, to help us remember this. Our Father, we thank you for this hope that we're not like the world that just swims in a sea of cliches and uh, meaningless phrases. But we have a definite hope through your son, through what he did for us. We are so thankful to you that uh, whether we are thinking of another believer who has departed or, or even our own death, that we are not banking on our good works or our performance, but we are, we are throwing ourselves down before you upon your mercy. We know that you will receive us at death because you said you would. We know that this was your plan from the beginning of time and that you accomplished all things necessary uh, to bring it about. And so again, we pray that same prayer that if there are any here who are grieving the loss of a loved one, that you would comfort them in a way that no, no person can. No person can reach into the heart and really give that that foundation and that great comfort that only you can give. And we also pray for those of us who may have death near in our future, maybe near in our families or in our church. We pray that you would sustain us in that dark moment and that that moment, while it's such a tragedy, wouldn't throw us into utter confusion, but we would at least have a few passages in the Bible that we know and, and have seen today that we can We can hold on to with one hand, even as we're grieving uh, so deeply. And we thank you for the hope that we have uh, in the gospel. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.